Good morning again. We now turn to the living and abiding Word of God. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4? One of the most astonishing statements in the Bible is what Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, verse 7. He says to them, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's astonishing because it seems impossible. How could it possibly be good for Jesus to leave us? But that's exactly what Jesus did. After he died for the sins of his people and rose again from the dead, he left us. As we talked about last week, he ascended back into heaven to sit at the right hand of his father on a throne as king. And what shocks us is that Jesus did this not at the end of something, but at the beginning. He said all throughout the Gospels that he was sending his disciples, the apostles, into the world as his witnesses. They would establish and build his church that would include people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He promised that this thing that began with about 120 people at Jesus' ascension would spread across the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the mission of the church. And what we learn in the ascension is that Jesus' strategy for that mission, at the very beginning of the age of the church, is to leave us. That's his plan. He is the head of the church. He is the cornerstone on which the church is built. His resurrection is the first fruits of the new creation. He is the one who promised to build his church and that because of him, the gates of hell would never prevail against it. And yet, he left. So again, how could it possibly be good news for Jesus to leave us? The day of Pentecost shows us the answer to that question. After Jesus leaves the earth in his ascension, he sends the Holy Spirit upon his church. The Holy Spirit of God, the helper, the comforter, is the reason why Jesus leaving is good news for you. And so today, we are going to talk about the good news of the gift of the Holy Spirit. We won't be able to talk about everything that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, but I especially want us to focus on what the Spirit's relationship is to the church. And so since we've read Acts 2, we are going to read the beginning of Ephesians 4 as our sermon text today, which is the word of God's reflection on the day of Pentecost. But before we hear from God's word, let's go to him and ask for his help. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and love you, O God. 
Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We'll go through verse 16. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we're going to ask two questions, focusing on what we just heard from Acts 2 and what we also heard from Ephesians 4. First, we're going to ask, what happened at Pentecost on that day? And then second, we're going to look at what the Holy Spirit does. What is it that the Holy Spirit accomplishes in our lives and the life of His church? The first thing we want to look at is what happened at Pentecost in Acts Chapter 2 that Rick read a moment ago. Remember, Jesus has just ascended to the right hand of the Father. That ascension was an exaltation. He was lifted up to a throne as the rightful king over this world and over the church. And so there he sits on his throne, ruling and reigning, and as we saw last week, interceding for us on our behalf. But Jesus promised the disciples that when he left, he would send the Holy Spirit to them. He's just said this in Acts chapter 1 in two different ways. He said to them, wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then again, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
And so when the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles in Acts chapter 2, they know what's going on. But the people around them don't. Some mock them and say that they are drunk. But others rejoice because they hear them proclaiming the gospel in their own native languages. So Peter stands up and explains to everyone what is happening. He explains it by quoting Joel 2 and then telling them what Jesus has just done. How he was killed and then raised from the dead. And now he is fulfilling that promise of Joel 2. That God's spirit would be poured out on all flesh. Peter says in Acts 2, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. He left, and then He sent the Holy Spirit. He ascended to heaven, and He poured out His Spirit upon His people on the earth. This is the good news of Pentecost. From the very beginning of the Bible, the story has been about God's presence with His people. We read that God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But the horrible result of their sin is that He cast them out of the Garden. They were exiled from His presence. They could no longer live and dwell in His presence because of their sin. We looked last week at the tabernacle and the temple, which was God's temporary answer to this problem. This was the way that he could dwell in the midst of his sinful people. In Leviticus 26, God tells them exactly what he is doing. He says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God. And you shall be my people. And the rest of the Old Testament is the long, sad story of God's people rejecting him and his presence among them again and again. Until finally, God didn't come in a cloud to fill the temple, but he came as a human being to be with his people. The Son of God became man and dwelt among his people. He lived in the midst of humanity, eating with tax collectors and sinners and calling the weary and broken to come to him for life. But then he left. He went away and took his presence back to heaven, away from the earth. What is going on? Was God reversing the good news? Was he again casting his people away from his presence? The answer is no. Once again, the story is so much better than we think it is. It is so much better than we could have guessed or have written ourselves. Do you remember the layout of the tabernacle from last week? It's a huge rectangle. And the outer region is called the courtyard. 
This is where the altar for the sin offering was. And then inside of that is the holy place. And then inside of that is the most holy place or the holy of holies. This is where God's presence dwelt. This is how he was among his people. And when any Israelite would walk into the entrance to the courtyard, the very first thing they would see is the bronze altar. This was the place where God allowed his people to make sacrifices for their sins, to pay for and atone for their sins. This was the message that he was giving to them. In order to come into my presence, your sin must be dealt with. Your sin must be cleansed. And so this was God's temporary answer to the sin in the Garden of Eden. Sin casts us out of God's presence. But in the tabernacle, God gave a way to pay for or atone for our sin so that we could come back into his presence, so that we could be with him again. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what Jesus is doing in the sending of his Holy Spirit. We are a sinful people, and so we cannot dwell with God. So what does Jesus do? Instead of a temporary shadow of sacrifices of bulls and goats, he sacrifices himself. God in the flesh died in our place. He paid for our sins once and for all. Why did he do that? To save us from the penalty of our sins, absolutely. But the promise is more than that. Jesus paid for our sins so that we could dwell in the presence of God once again. He has cleansed you of your sin and cleared the way. Now, instead of gaining access to the presence of God in the temple or tabernacle, what has he done? He has sent the very presence of God to spread across the entire earth and even to live continually inside of you. This is what the rest of the New Testament tells us. Specifically, the church, both collectively and individually, is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God himself. The gift that Jesus has sent us at Pentecost is not a something It is a someone. God has come to dwell among his people once again. Jesus didn't come to the earth and die and raise from the dead just so that he could give you an admission ticket to heaven or some superpower to live a happy and fulfilled life. No, the promise of the gospel is that Jesus died so that he could give you himself. Eternal life isn't a mansion up over the hilltop. Eternal life is knowing and being with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The final hope of eternal life isn't just no more tears and no more death. It is no more tears and no more death because God says to us, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We'll talk about the Trinity a bit more next Sunday, but the amazing and mysterious truth of the Trinity is that one God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus, who is God the Son, can say, if I do not go away, 
The Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But those three distinct persons are one God, so much so that Jesus can also say about that same promise of the Holy Spirit, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is the amazing and mysterious and glorious truth of the gospel. Jesus has not just saved you from hell. He has not just given you the riches of heaven. He has given you himself. The perpetual, ongoing, powerful indwelling of the Holy Spirit within you. This is the good news of Pentecost. God is with you. He has made his home with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is not just for the apostles. This isn't just a promise for super-Christians. When everyone on the day of Pentecost cries out to Peter, what shall we do? He responds by saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus, not just mental assent that he exists, but trust in him, the God-man, to forgive you of your sins, if you trust in him, then all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. You are right now a living, breathing temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in you. He is always with you to the end of the age. This is the incredible news of the day of Pentecost. Now that's what happened at the day of Pentecost. But what does that mean? What does the presence of the Holy Spirit in you and in his church mean? God is with you. He is with us, but that isn't just a sentimental nicety or even just a promise for the future. It is a present reality that affects everyone in our lives in the here and now. So I want us to look at Ephesians 4 again to get a picture of some of those effects, some of those realities for Christians and for the church as a whole. Ephesians 4 doesn't say everything about what the Holy Spirit does, but it does say a lot. So let's read this passage again, and then I want to draw out three implications for what it is that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended 
into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The first thing that we see in this passage is that the Holy Spirit is a uniter. The Holy Spirit is a uniter. He brings together things that were previously separated. Verse 3 talks about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Holy Spirit is a binding agent for God, like superglue. And he primarily binds two things together. He binds Christians to Jesus Christ, and he binds Christians to each other. The Holy Spirit binds Christians to Jesus. This is the vital insight that John Calvin had into the work of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit's work is connected to the work of Jesus. In his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says right after he has written page after page after page about the work of Christ, what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection and all that he has done, he asks this question, how do we receive those benefits? which the Father bestowed on Jesus Christ. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell with us. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. By coming to dwell in us, He unites us to Jesus Christ. He makes Jesus Christ and His salvation yours. Again, this shows us that the gospel isn't transactional. It's not Jesus handing us a couple of gifts along with a list of do's and don'ts. No, the gospel is relational and organic. We are united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, like branches that are grafted onto a vine. And so our life and our joy and our fruit flow from Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. Christians are united to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. But we also see that Christians are united to one another by the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's whole point In 1 Corinthians 12, if Christ is the head of the church, then all his members are also joined together like the parts of a body. 
And so the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Because Jesus has said that you do need each other. In his infinite wisdom, he shows us that we are not just made for relationship with God. We are made for relationship with one another. We aren't mere colleagues or buddies. We are members of the same family, the same body even. And this is especially important to see on the day of Pentecost, when the gospel bursts forth to all the nations. God does not just join us together with people who are like us. He joins us with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That is who will be gathered around the throne when Jesus returns, and that is who he intends for us to gather with on the earth. Men and women, children and adults, all economic and social classes, all personalities, all races, all languages, this is the church. Things that our sinful nature wants to separate, the Holy Spirit joins together. The Holy Spirit doesn't just unite you to Jesus. He unites you to all Christians. He is the binding agent of God, bringing unity from disunity and joining together things that have been separated by sin. That note of unity, of oneness, is the first thing we see the Spirit doing in Ephesians 4. The second thing we need to see is that unity is not just theoretical. It is also practical. Remember, Jesus' work was to save his people from their sins. And our sins have a real effect on us as people and in our relationships. The Bible talks about the effects of that sin in three ways. Sin has affected our knowledge, it has affected our loves, and it has affected our actions. Sin has made us ignorant of God. Romans 1 says that we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. Sin has also twisted our hearts to love the wrong things instead of God and one another. And sin has polluted our actions. We live lives of selfishness and indulgence and hatred instead of the holy lives that God made us for. The Holy Spirit reverses all three of those things in us by Christ's salvation. The theological terms for what the Holy Spirit does are illumination. He opens our eyes and our minds to the truth of God. Regeneration. He takes out our twisted hearts of stone. This is what we saw in our assurance of pardon today. And he gives us hearts of flesh that love and long for the things that God loves. And sanctification. He makes us more and more holy. He makes our lives and our actions and our relationships look more and more like Jesus. Look how Ephesians 4 shows the Holy Spirit redeeming all three of those things, all three of those ways that sin has affected us, our knowledge, our loves, and our actions toward one another. Let's read verses 11 to 16 again with those lenses on to see what it is that the Holy Spirit is doing. Verse 11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. This is the way that the Holy Spirit works in the church. He brings our minds, our hearts, and our lives into alignment with our head, Jesus Christ. This is a long, slow work, as we can all attest to. Sin has worked its way deep into us. And so the Holy Spirit sweetly, patiently, sometimes painfully, roots that sin out of our lives and brings us to maturity in Christ. The Holy Spirit applies Jesus' salvation from sin to our day-to-day lives. The last thing we see in this passage is that the Holy Spirit does that in pretty ordinary and small ways. What are the means or the tools that the Holy Spirit uses to accomplish this seemingly impossible task of uniting a separated people into a family and rooting sin out of our lives. How does he do it? We figure it must be something huge and extraordinary and amazing. But this passage gives us hints of what the rest of the New Testament teaches. That the Holy Spirit most normally uses very ordinary means to accomplish this amazing work in us. Here in this passage, we see in verse 12, he tells us that the church is built up by the work of ministry. This is the ordinary day in and day out worship and service of the church. That leads to all those doctrinal comments about growing in knowledge and maturity into Christ. In verse 15, Paul says that this growth also happens by believers speaking the truth in love to one another. This is the daily and weekly task of reminding each other of the truth of God's word, but doing it not in a cruel way, but in a way that shows our love and care and concern for one another. And then finally, we see verse 16 talking about ordinary acts of service and love. Paul calls this each part of the body working properly. This is using the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you for the good of one another, for the good of His church. Beloved, these are very ordinary things. They do not seem spectacular to us. The tools and avenues the Holy Spirit uses throughout the Bible are things like the Word of God and prayer and the sacraments and the regular fellowship of Christians. These ordinary things are what God, in His infinite wisdom, has chosen to use to make us into a new creation. And this is the last note I want to leave you with about the Holy Spirit. Too often, our discussions of the work of the Holy Spirit 
end with us longing for the spectacular or the extraordinary. Michael Horton in his book, Recovering, Rediscovering rather, the Holy Spirit says this, we too easily treat the Holy Spirit as a placeholder for the extra things in Christianity. Sure, we have the Father and the Son, but we also need the Holy Spirit. You may be redeemed, but have you been baptized in the Spirit? The Word is vital, but we must not forget the Spirit. Doctrine is important, but there is also experience. He says, I want to challenge this association of the Spirit merely with the extraordinary. This is unfortunate all around because it distinguishes His work too sharply from that of the Father and the Son, and also because it distracts us from the vast range of His activity in our world and in our lives. Do you see that when we expect the Holy Spirit to be working only in extraordinary and spectacular ways, this is not too big a view of the Holy Spirit, but too small. It restricts the Holy Spirit's actions in our lives to those four or five big moments, whether that be a miraculous healing or an intense emotional experience. But when does the Bible tell you that the Holy Spirit is working in you? Right now, as you worship with God's people, in the word and prayer, the sacraments and singing, he's at work in you when you read his word on your own and when you go to your knees in prayer. He's at work in you in the midst of your suffering. He's at work in you when the Christian brother or sister beside you says or does that thing that you just hate and you struggle with how to love them. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is doing a miraculous work in you every hour of every day, in the mundane and in the ordinary. He is taking people who are hostile to God and giving them hearts that love him. He is taking corrupt minds and giving them the knowledge of Christ. He is taking us ruined sinners and reclaiming us as new creations. This is a miraculous and spectacular work. But he is doing all this by the ordinary, everyday work of the Christian life. This is the good news of Pentecost. It is not that you have some cool new talent to show off to your friends. It's not that it is always going to be happy and easy for you now. It is that the Holy Spirit, God himself, now lives in you. And by his powerful working, he is changing you. He is changing us. Little by little, he is rooting out our sin and building us up in every way into Jesus Christ. Until one day, he will present us to Jesus in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or sin. This is the gift Jesus has poured out on his people. This is the good news of Pentecost. Brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in the Holy Spirit. Would you all pray with me? Father, we praise you that your wisdom is far above our wisdom, that none of us is your counselor, and so, Lord, we thank you that your ways are better than our ways. We thank you that though Jesus has ascended 
to your right hand, he has poured out his Holy Spirit on us, his church. We pray that we would be more thankful, that we would be more attentive to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Give us eyes to see him at work. Lord, we pray that you would continue to fill us with your Spirit, that we might be more and more like Christ, that we might love the things that you love, and that you might prepare us for the day of Christ's return. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.